Last month, we heard the disturbing news that a foreign government had essentially chased a TV station out of London. The government was Iran, and the TV station was Iran International, a Persian-language news service that the regime had been subjecting to a campaign of smears, intimidation and threats. So severe were those threats that the Metropolitan Police had to tell Iran International that they could no longer guarantee the safety of the staff who worked for the station or the public around them. And so, on February the 18th, 2023, Iran International announced that it had reluctantly decided to close its London studios and to decamp to Washington, D.C. It was the latest incident in a sustained campaign by Iran against Iran International that saw the regime accuse the station of terrorism for allegedly inciting the protests that have torn the country apart in recent months. I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of the Conservative Middle East Council, and in this podcast I'll be talking to someone who knows all about the problems that even foreign-based journalists have in covering events in Iran. I'm delighted to welcome Roger McMillan, Director of Safety, Security and Resilience for Iran International. Roger, welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for joining me on this podcast. The decision to leave London, that must have been quite a tough one to take, wasn't it? Well, not really. We have enjoyed a very good close working relationship with uh, key elements of the Metropolitan Police over the last four months since these, uh, these threats have begun. And so we worked closely with them, as I said. So when they asked to do this, we complied. We felt it was very important that we put the public safety as a higher priority than the ability for us to, to broadcast from London when we already had our, our backup studios in, in Washington, D.C. So this was something you'd anticipated and had actually planned for? Perhaps not quite to this extremity. However, it is something we, it's a facility that we have. Uh, we broadcast from there to take the workload away from London, and it was a simple, well, not a simple mean, but we actually were able to just flick across all and broadcast within an hour and a half of being the request being made by the police. We were back in and operating fully from DC. Can you describe the kind of threats that led up to that decision to leave? How intense were they? We have experienced, since the, the murder of Massa Amini, we have experienced a large number of intimidations, uh, both digital and physical. We have experienced threats to the channel directly and also threats to our staff. And this is all part of, of a campaign of transnational repression, uh, undoubtedly carried out by hostile state-backed actors. Talk about what do you mean about transnational repression? What I mean is the, the ability of a foreign state to, to threaten and intimidate people who live and work in the UK, uh, not just the UK, but overseas. Uh, you have seen the Iranians attempt to, to harass people in the United States, the well-known activist Masa Alinejad uh, being one of them. But also you see other activities that the Iranian state have taken place, such as the, the capture and killing of Ruhollah Azam. You also have the capture and illegal rendering to back to Iran of Habib Chab. So the Iranian state uses their long arms and their tentacles uh, to harass people, not just journalists, but activists overseas. How new is this? I mean, we all remember Salman Rushdie and the problems that he faced. Has the transnational repression problem increased in recent years? I think what we have seen is a certain marked increase in activity over, over the last six months. Uh, it has always been there. It goes in fits and starts, but they have a, a, a clearly defined capability to operate overseas. 
a clearly designed program to intimidate and harass those people who are against what they are, what they believe in. And how they, they do that is through uh, the repression of, of people overseas. I mean, anyone who's seen the film Argo will recall that moment in the film when the hostages are taken out of Iranian airspace and everyone breathes a huge sigh of relief and you as a viewer feel that palpable sense of relief that you're safe now you're out of Iran. And what you're saying is that you can even be in the UK and you don't have that kind of safety, even the most innocuous feeling of, you know, countryside out-of-town suburban places, you don't have that immunity from Iran that most people would think that you do. I think when you work for an organisation, which we are you know, on free media, we, we firmly believe in the media freedom, uh, when we are not complying with states such as Iran, we're not complying with their, their own narrative, uh, we are reporting the facts, we are reporting the truth, we are reporting this critical information back to people in Iran and therefore we are going to come under that level of repression. So what we, our journalists do that they know they are going to be on the receiving end of these, of these threats. It comes with the territory, sadly. But it's indicative of how effective journalists have been in holding the regime or the government in Iran to account for their actions. So because of that, unfortunately, you will never be completely free from these, these threats. So what was your reaction to being declared a terror organisation by the regime and, and accused of being a threat to national security? Was it a, a shock, a badge of honour? What was your reaction? I think I smiled. <laughs> I, I think it was, it was taken with, a, with a, quite a degree of, of quite a large pinch of salt. It wasn't something that particularly affected us when we look at who else was being sanctioned and who else was being listed on the terrorist group. I thought we were in quite good company. Did you see it as a sign of weakness on behalf of the regime? I see it as undoubtedly as a sign that the impact that journalism has back in Iran, back on the feelings in Iran, is critical. And I think this is their further attempt to sort of silence it. So some people get a golden gong, some people get uh, threats from hostile regimes. Yeah. And, I mean, you're not the only media outlet, are you, to be threatened and whose staff have come under threat. BBC's Persian services also come under pressure and, and others... Is there much of a sense of solidarity amongst those who are threatened? Do you have much connection? What's it like to be part of that kind of community? I, I would say that you know we, we are certainly not unique in this. Uh, and our colleagues at BBC Persia, our colleagues at Manito, uh, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, uh, we all have a collective degree of solidarity. I think perhaps the approach and how each individual organisation faces these challenges it differs. But you know, collectively, we, we are... We are all striving um, to deliver the news and back to the people in Iran who so critically need it. And of course, I mean, we're talking about you guys have been based in the UK. A lot of these other media outlets are based in Europe. But there are journalists based in and around and near Iran and in Iran. They must be very much harder to protect. Yes, they are. You know, we are in close contact with all of our uh, journalists um, who work for us in, in and around the Persian diaspora globally. Those people who are closer to Iran obviously are at a, a higher risk and we, we work hard to, to give them the tools to protect themselves. Let's ask a personal question. Your background isn't in media, is it? Absolutely not, no. Yours is more on the security side. Absolutely.
I was, yeah, I was in the military for many years. What is the motivation of people who knowingly put their security at risk and the security of their families to tell the truth? I hold those people in with great admiration. I mean, the, the challenges and the risks that they face on a near daily basis is something that I think many people would, would suffer greatly from, you know, they would question themselves, why are we putting ourselves with this? But these guys see a much higher purpose in what they do and they are committed uh, very heavily and very strongly to giving people back in Iran the access to unfiltered, unbiased, uncensored news. What is going on in their country that has happened, not just on the political side, but on sport, on current on other current affairs, on, on documentaries, on the cultural aspects that's happening in the diaspora. And it's very important for them to retain that connection with Iran. And so you do think it actually has an impact? I believe it does. In a recent independent study conducted by the Association of International Broadcasters, it showed that Iran International TV was hitting something like 33% of the daily news viewing figures in Iran. We also have our, our radio service. BBC Persia has a radio service too, and these, this is getting into even more communities back there. During the early phases of the, the demonstrations in the, in the light of the death and the murder of uh, Masa Amini, we did see that the Iranian state were, were jamming satellites, and they were jammed satellites belonging to UTEL and Arabsat. Remind our, remind our listeners when that murder took place and what so happened afterwards. It, so Masa Amini was the, the young lady who was killed in police custody for not wearing her hijab. And since then, the young, the youth of, of Iran have led the way, particularly the women, uh, about regaining the, their, their sort of their independence and their freedom. And the women life freedom movement is quite staggering, led by the young women, and right down to teenage girls at school, being incredibly brave in their, their actions to stand up against the repression that they face, again, on a daily basis. I'm Charlotte Leslie. I'm speaking to Head of Security and Safety for Iran International, Roger McMillan. And so going to that movement, what is your view of the revolution? I mean, if indeed you call it a revolution happening in Iran today, and how do you see it developing? I don't believe it's a revolution yet. I think what we are still seeing is the some form of revolution fermenting. As yet, there is not one solidified opposition group. We have the opposition, but it's fairly amorphous at the moment. And actually, in many ways, that stands in their favour, because if the government will have more targets to attack, and when one, one is attacked, then another one rises. So currently, it is in, in its favour. I think you have to look at some of the, the people, not just within the country, but also those people who are outside the country, in the part of the diaspora, key, key members of the diaspora. You're looking at uh, Reza Pahlavi, you might look at Hamid Esmailion, you could look at Inajad, people there. Uh, maybe they will be the leader, maybe they will not. But perhaps one of those uh, can use their convening powers. When I say that, I mean one might be the kingmaker, not necessarily the king. What's the unity like between the potential opposition leaders? Is there a sense of working together or is there fragmentation? I personally, I believe there's still a degree of fragmentation. I think they are aligning, but it will still take some time. Mm.
There are many listening to this who would probably disagree with you about the idea that there is or isn't a revolution happening. I've heard many people say that revolution very much is happening and it's been led very much by women and very much about women. So although women are both leading it, but also leading the men in revolting as well for a, for a society where women can take their proper place. What would you say to women who say, well, look, women, life, freedom, we are changing everything. This is a revolution. I think what they are doing is outstanding. It's revolutionary. Uh, it is breaking every single mould that the country has seen. Um, is it necessarily a political revolution yet? Not yet. Could it be? I see no reason why not. So in a sense you're saying that if a revolution is to succeed there needs to be some kind of unity in the opposition and some political planning for when the regime falls? I think you have to draw lessons from history and you look at lessons from other parts of that region where you conducted debathification and that will be a very difficult aspect for the Iranian people to come to terms with. It happened in the, the revolution of 79 where anybody connected with the Shah was removed. That's not my decision to make. Mm. I was going to come to that. We, I mean, we're looking at 20 years on now from the invasion of Iraq, and we saw that toppling a statue and toppling a leader is not the end of the story. And actually it's the beginning of the story of rebuilding a society that may be very pleased to have got rid of that particular leader but needs to form itself in a, in a new fashion. And that debuffification wasn't necessarily done in the best way or was the best strategy. On that... How are we to deal with the IRGC? On Some will say it's clearly a terrorist organisation and should be prescribed as such. Others say um, don't, don't commit the same follies of the debathification and please leave someone else, someone behind within that regime who can still run the country. What's your view on prescription? They ought to be prescribed now. However, when we talk about people left behind to help in government, to help rule, you know, by that you also mean the people who necessarily maybe look after the critical national infrastructure, the people who operate schools, higher education establishments, banking establishments. Those are the people we still need to keep back in power in that country. But we are looking primarily at the military aspects of the IRGC, those people who are repress the people, control the people on the ground through the besiege, but also through their overseas forces, the COD's force, for example, who are the ones who look at primarily sponsoring this transnational repression that we see. So, so you, you can, in this instance with the IRGC, target the prescription such that you're, you don't disable the ability to rebuild an infrastructure where a revolution to take place. I, I would believe that you can actually. We look at the military aspects of it as opposed to the socio-economic aspects. The other argument I've heard is that the IRGC itself is quite fragmented. And if the revolution is to occur, and it, I think probably post-Iraq, we all agree that it should happen within Iran and it's for the Iranian people to decide. But if there is that fragmentation, would prescription provide a very convenient common enemy? and create a unity where perhaps there wasn't before. My enemy's enemy is my friend. <laughs> is that a, that's a politician's answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, I, I would suggest that you know, when you have one common enemy, you will, you will be able to put your, your own personal views aside and then you, you form an alliance from there. And do you think, I mean, there is 
rightly or wrongly, still debate about prescription of the IRGC. And as we've discussed, the arguments go clearly in values they should be prescribed. Others say, well, practically, it may not be practically the best way to exhibit our definition of who they are. Do you think the West has the right tools to deal with entities like the IRGC, or do we need different tools? If we take the, the issue of prescription out of it from now, yes, I do think we do. We have the terrorism laws that we have in the country. We just have to use them. There are plenty of opportunities that we would have where people who are, I'll take the UK for example, living in the United Kingdom, who are perhaps not necessarily perpetrating but supporting some acts of, of repression or brutality. Uh, you take uh, most recently the attack and the blinding of uh, Sir Salman Rushdie. It, 34 years after the fatwa was issued upon him. And yet the man who theologized the fatwa and also tweeted about how great it was that Salman Rushdie had been attacked is living in London. That's, I mean, may, many people say that's absolutely extraordinary. How can that be allowed to happen? What's gone wrong? We need to get tough on these people. We need to be using our terror laws to prevent and remove the ability for organisations to conduct terror operations, fear operations here in the UK and across the rest of, of the globe. This has, to, this has to happen. We need to be looking at how the police can be supported in this, how the judiciary can, can act quickly. I will say that in our own case, most recently the Austrian national who was arrested shortly after arriving and conducting hostile reconnaissance on our building was arrested by the Metropolitan Police within five hours. He was charged within 36. He was in court 72 hours after landing in the UK and he will be going to trial at the Old Bailey at the end of the year. Wow, so that really was action taken? Action was taken. It was swift and it was decisive by the police and the judiciary. I'm Charlotte Leslie. I'm speaking to Head of Security and Safety for Iran International, Roger McMillan. So a reaction, going back to your circumstance for a second, a reaction a lot of people would have had when reading the headlines that Iran International aren't safe in the UK, so they have to go to Washington. Is that fair? Is it that the UK isn't safe but Washington DC is? What happened there? Because from what you've just told me, the UK responded very decisively and very quickly. United Kingdom is safe. We have enjoyed a close working relationship with key elements of the police, Metropolitan Police on this, and the United Kingdom is safe. The reason we went to the, the United States was simply that's where our backup facility was. That could have been in Stockholm, it could have been in Berlin, it could have been anywhere else. However, for, for reasons, we, we selected Washington DC, and that's where we have our backup facility from there. So. It's not a bit that we are fleeing the UK or we're running away because the UK is not safe. Far from it. And is that because moving disrupts the ability for people to threaten you? Is that a factor in the benefits of moving? Hitting a moving target always far more complicated. You have to, in our, in our case, by removing ourselves within an hour and a half of being requested by the police, we flicked our broadcast operations to, to Washington DC, no mean feat. But of course, then that gives us time. And this is, this is a, 
this is a sort of a, a, a battle all about time. We need to have time and distance before, you know, to, to dislocate, to disrupt our adversary's ability to find us, to track us, before we can come back. How many people do you think, in the general public, you know, us just going about our, our daily lives, not doing the kind of job you're doing, how many people understand the extent to which there are hostile states who are actively trying to disrupt our, our way of life, what we see and hear here in the UK, and disrupt people who are trying to tell the truth from here within the UK? Sadly, I think very few. It's not a, a story well known or well told, although we're getting better at it. I've started to communicate a lot more in English through various means and other languages to hit different audiences, to make them aware of all of this. And actually over this particular weekend, 19th, 20th of February, our press releases hit something like two and a half thousand agencies, organisations and outlets worldwide over that weekend. And it was assessed that our reach was over 180 million people in that one weekend. So more people are aware of it. And in fact, on a personal note, I had a text from a friend of mine who said to me, I'm 12 and a half thousand kilometers away on a beach in Madagascar. I've just got a text from LBC. I click on the link and you're talking and telling me all about Iran. So we're getting the message out that journalists in this country are not free from the, the trials and tribulations of transnational repression, of state-backed threats and risks to them in this country. We're working closely with the Home Office on this. Uh, we've been incredibly well supported and we will be back. I'm Charlotte Leslie. I'm speaking to Head of Security and Safety for Iran International, Roger McMillan. Roger, just to go back a bit to what more the UK can do, you talked about how the man who issued the fatwa against Salman Rushdie is, is living happily in London. And I'm interested in why this is. I mean, I guess people who sponsor terrorism and are, are behind what we would call terrorism do not have horns and a tail and, you know, cloven hooves. They don't present as such. I'm guessing often they're very plausible. Do we need to become a little bit more streetwise to start looking behind some of the facades that people present, these kind of people present? Very much so. It's not just the people. It's, it's also certain organisations. And you have to look at uh, some uh, organisations with their centres in London and around the UK who are well-known to be state-sponsored and state-backed. And I would urge uh, the Charities Commission, for example, to look at those organisations and what data to see what they are doing behind these closed doors. I mean, this may be a, a question for perhaps even a politician at another time, but have you any sense of the obstacles that are in the way of doing that? Do you get the sense it's just funding or a fear of being seen to target certain communities unfairly? Are there any things that you feel are very definitely holding us back on that? I think you're probably right in this. It's probably better from a politician's perspective, but I would suggest that perhaps we, we need to invest more in supporting the counter-terror police and other communities in, in how they can work best to protect us and the wider public. And there's the, there's the old adage, follow the money. And again, recently we've been, in, we've been enacting laws to try and trace the origins of money, beneficial ownership, and try to understand what the money flow going through the city and going through our country is. Do you see issues with Companies House, which is another 
organisation behind which I guess it's very easy to to hide? I, I think your adage is, is, is spot on. I think you, you do need to follow the money. If terrorism has to be funded, how it's funded will be by potentially by donations, by supported people within the diaspora. It'll be by organisations which are channeling money from from other countries into the UK to d develop works. And I think that's, that's what really needs to be looked at. And finally, you with your military background, you could have gone off to do a lot of things. What has made you come to Iran International and use your experience and expertise in, in this organisation? I think most military officers always have a, some sort of quest or a cause that they have to champion. And, uh, you know, I, I guess mine has just been looking after my journalists. Uh, I admire them. They're incredible people. They put themselves at great risk to perform and carry out their, their craft. And somebody has to look after them. Roger McMillan from Iran International, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.